So tonight we're experimenting with the new amp. How is that? I'm not talking very... So you're way in the back. Can you hear back there? Yeah? Cool. And how is it over there? Yes? Great. All right. So, like a lot of therapists and former therapists, which is what I am, I've often thought that part of the reason I was interested in things psychological was that I was just nosy. So, one of the things that I do with great regularity to sort of keep myself up on people's problems and their suffering is I read Dear Abby. I think that's what it is in the, in the Sentinel, whichever one the Sentinel has. And this morning I was, read it, and then later as I was thinking about my talk, I thought, oh, this really fits quite perfectly. There was the story of a woman who had gone to see a counselor, and the woman was very desperate, as people often are sometimes when they go in to seek some help finally. And she was sure that nothing would help her, that there was just nothing that she could do, that she was so caught in her suffering that she would probably just have to stay there until she died. And the therapist said to her, well, is your heart still beating? And then went on, of course, to explain that if she was still alive and she was still here, perhaps there was a way to come to an ending of suffering. And that the woman had gone on to change her life and things had indeed become better. So I was thinking, we've been talking these last several weeks um, about um, one of the teachings of the Buddha, which is the, the teaching of what creates the conditions for liberation or what creates the conditions for waking up what creates the conditions for the ending of suffering. And we noted that the beginning of that list actually is to begin to be willing to struggle with your own suffering and to um, work on it in that way that we do that, um, that leads us towards some opening and some change. And we've talked in here about how that when we meet our suffering in that way, it creates the conditions for a certain conviction or faith to arise that begins to trust that there is a way. And not faith in the sense of believing, we talked about this last week, but more faith in the sense of trusting deeply our own experience. And that there is you know, a possibility of a way out. And we begin to see that a lot of our own, it's not that the pain goes away. And the the Buddha teaches this quite clearly, that pain is inherent in the human experience. You know, we all get sick and we all have relationships that we struggle with. And in the end, we all die. There's a certain amount of pain that's just there, but there's an enormous piece of suffering that comes from that place where we want things 
to be different from the way that they are and that when we change our own interior space then our then our um, connectedness and response to the pain around us changes and and the wonderful thing about the teaching of the buddha i think is that that this teaching about the way out of suffering doesn't require any kind of magical beliefs no there's nothing that you have to believe or or mysterious things that you have to do in order to come to an ending of suffering um, nor does it particularly justify the pain it just says that a certain amount of it is is just there we all know that um, and that we can live in a way in which we suffer less and so this teaching one of the images that I came across in reading about this week's piece which is a piece about joy actually is that when we begin to trust when we begin to trust in that way when we begin to trust these teachings it's a bit like so here's a piece of magic for you but this is a, it's an image it's not anything you have to believe it's a bit as though you had a, a magic gem and you could drop it into the really muddy waters and the waters would clear and the waters would clear so I thought a little about well what is it so you have suffering and you have this place of conviction or beginning to trust your own experience so why is it that this creates the conditions for joy I mean that seemed you know like that's a a big jump forward and then I was interested to see that even some of the teachings talk about this as the big jump forward it's the place where you have enough courage to kind of go into the raging river and get ready to cross it and my sense is and um, and this was what I was finding in my study is that this is about that place where we begin to have a sense of some direction that you begin to have a sense of oh there are some things that I can do there's a practice to be done you can there are groups like this one you can come to the center pretty much any night of the week and there'll be some kind of a teaching happening here there's if you go to gateways or even bookshop or go to onto Amazon and enter Buddha there's books to be read you know stacks and stacks of things that you can read and study in your Buddhist exploration Um, talks to be listened to and then of course there's the practice of meditation itself and so this this place that comes out of the suffering and the arising of conviction my sense is that this is the place where we get it that what this is about it's a bit like taking on a training program you know you've decided that you're going to run a marathon or you're going to lose 20 pounds or you're going to develop some muscles or whatever we've all done that you know or you're going to learn how to play tennis finally or golf or whatever and and so you launch yourself into a training program right you go to the gym you start to take classes you find somebody to teach you it's not that you're there yet you know if you go take beginning tennis lessons you don't already know how to play championship tennis you start the piano you don't know how to play the piano very well yet if you go to the gym and you've been nothing but a couch potato for years you don't have any muscles yet but you do have that sense of I've begun I know 
I know that there's something I can do. And that's, I think, where the joy begins to arise. It's that sense of, I can do it. I know how to get out of here. Which just just is such a, a deep sense of relief. And there's two areas that are particularly important, I think, for this piece, this, this piece of the path that, that then create the conditions for all of the, the next stages that we'll get to in the coming weeks. And so one of them is that as we begin to follow this direction, this Buddhist path, we usually realize pretty quickly that we have to live our lives fairly carefully and wisely in order to support that path. You can't just go out and you know do hurtful and um, difficult things and follow this path. And so one of the basic, basic teachings that begins any training in Buddhist practice is the teachings about um, keeping the precepts, actually. So in the Eightfold Path, it's described as wise speech, wise action, and a wise choice of livelihood. So that's one way to describe it. And the precepts that many lay people keep, it's about not harming, not taking things which are not offered to you, about not harming with your speech, not harming with your sexuality, and not intoxicating body or mind. So those are the five training precepts. And you can see that they they fit right together with wise speech and wise action, and and then wise livelihood is sort of a, a, a consequence of all of that. And so, so that these precepts are both to encourage us to abstain from unwholesome acts, from things that are unskillful or that would harm ourselves or another person, and also support um, the development of the heart of compassion and, and sobriety of a certain sort and, and a kind of purity, although that's not a word that we use a lot in our in our culture these days. So I just wanted to go over those precepts because it's you know it's commented on a lot that um, when we come to a place like this, when I've talked in groups about the precepts, people will say things like, you know, I'm, it's so nice to be in a group of people where I know people are trying to speak carefully. They're trying to speak in a way that won't harm another person. Or where I know, you know, I can leave my purse over there and walk away from it and it'll still be there when I come back, those kinds of things. That we really, you know, because we know that everyone who gathers here is, in a sense, committed to this kind of ethical path. And that this is this way, this this path of precepts creates a kind of container for our practice, or a foundation, if you will. So not harming, that's pretty obvious, not harming yourself or another. Sometimes the precept is taken as not killing, so not killing any other being. Um, And 
you know, really a precept which honors the preciousness of life and, and that each being, large and small, has the right to that life um, and to live it out in their own way. And so to, you know, even, you know, I know lots of people who struggle with things like mosquitoes, right? Mosquitoes are definitely the challenge course for lay people in not harming. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Um, but, you know, that mind state that even begins to consider the well-being of a mosquito is actually a very wonderful mind state. And if that's even as far as you got, that's a big step along the way to really begin to go, oh, wait a minute, this little amazingly intricate being that can stick its little proboscis into me and pull blood out. I mean, that's astounding, really, when you think about it. And um, and that this being also has the right to its own existence and can I brush it off gently instead of squashing it. Um, so to, to use these kinds of things as trainings to be very, very careful about the lives of other beings. I always love it at retreats because you're forever seeing somebody come out of a building with a little jar and a piece of paper underneath of it with some spider or, you know, ant or the spirit rock. Even people are careful of the ticks, you know, and they take them out and let them go outside. So that's pretty deep respect for life. And it's a training for the much, much bigger issues of, of that confront us all the time about abortion and euthanasia and, and really, really big issues that deal with how do we approach each other as human beings. Not taking that which is not offered to you. So not stealing, but also, you know, really working with, is it offered to me? You know, is it's not a, we're in, we've been in such a help yourself kind of culture, you know, and we've helped ourselves to entire species and whole ecologies and we've done enormous damage to the planet because we haven't just been contented with what was offered to us. So this is actually really a renunciate precept in a, in a kind of a simple way. It's not asking you to be a monk or a nun, but can you practice contentment with what you have and not always be on the lookout for how you can get more and how you can take more and to be very, very careful of other people's belongings and things. Not harming with your sexuality, I don't probably even need to say very much about that one. You know, we've all been there and done that and we know what a very powerful energy it is. So again, to be in a group of people and I, I, particularly in the retreat world, I hear about this, how wonderful people feel to be able to come to a setting where that's just not an issue. And it's not that people haven't met future partners at retreats. They have. You know, it happens fairly regularly, actually. But during the retreat, the time is really safe and the container is kept very carefully. And in, in a community like this also, to be really careful to practice that. And then, you know, out in our everyday lives. Because that, you know, constant um, over-sexualization of our culture that we've all lived with 
has not been helpful and the papers are filled with stories of the harm that the misuse of sexuality causes. So really learning how to not harm another person, that's the basic precept. And then to the extent that you are sexually active, to really use it wisely and well and carefully. Each one of these precepts has that kind of dimension. It has the don't do this, and then it has the side that is, okay, and if and what you can develop to kind of counter it, like what you can develop for that mentality of the second precept of taking is the practice of generosity. You know, what you can develop for the for against harming is the practice of compassion. And so these those are the sort of positive things that you can use to support the bottom line place of the precept. The fourth precept is the precept about speech. And um, for my money, I think that is the precept in our everyday life as, as lay people, that we all talk all the time and everyone here has been hurt by speech that has not been used well. And every one of us has hurt someone with our speech. We all know how to do this. Wise speech is, there are four categories. Honest, beneficial, timely, and kind in the sense of not not being mean. So it's not, not kind in the sense of nice, but kind in the sense of not mean. So, and you can't have just one of them. They all four have to be there. So it can't be honest, but the timing is off, because that's not really wise speech. It can't be... Um, not mean, but dishonest, sort of codependent, if you will. That's not wise speech. So it really has to have all of them together. Honest, beneficial, timely, and kind. And we all know, for example, how honest speech is sometimes mean and brutal and not at all timely. So... It's really helpful to consider. And again, in a community like this, you know, I've loved it when I've been with people and someone said, started to open their mouth and say something and then they go, I think, I don't think I'm going to say that. I don't think it's wise speech. And of course, there's always that in me that wants to say, yeah, tell me anyway, you know. What what was it you were going to say? What was that gossipy, mean thing? which is not wise on my part and not helpful to encourage them to do that. And and mostly it's delightful to see that people are really putting out that kind of energy. And if I were to say that to any one of you, you would understand and you would go, oh, okay, you know, she's working on speech and saying it wisely and kindly. We try this a lot at the board meetings. Martin can talk about that, about really trying to be careful with our speech and using practices, using the practice of counsel as a practice of wise speech so that we'll not interrupt each other and try to be thoughtful and deliberate about what it is that we say. And then not intoxicating body or mind. So this is aimed at the reckless, abusive use of drugs, recreational drugs and alcohol, It's never aimed at medication that's being used as medication. 
So those of you, we, we get that question at retreats a lot, should I stop taking my medication? <laughs> the answer is no, please take your medication. So it's really aimed at the abusive use of substances and not unfamiliar to any one of us. It doesn't specifically aimed, aim itself at things like caffeine and sugar and the television and your computer and your iPhone and all of those things that maybe you could consider you are using to intoxicate the mind. And I think for us in the West at this particular time, it's really helpful to think about how do I observe that precept everywhere in my life, not just with the use of substance. But the bottom line place, again, is substance. It also, phrased that way, is not a don't ever use, don't have a glass of wine, you know, that kind of thing. It says don't intoxicate body or mind. So that's a little bit leaves a little space for your own subject, subjective decision. You know, is a glass of wine something that's fine or not? And I'm not going to tell you, and you get to work with it. So all of these things create this container for our practice. And as you come into practice, as you as you work on the cycle of waking up, having this this training to take on. You know, you could take on all five precepts. You can take on one and go, all right, I'm really going to work on this one precept for the next month and see what that does to my practice. And that's that place where a certain kind of joy begins to come up because you know what to do. And the other piece besides the training in, in the precepts is of course the training of the mind and beginning to learn how to meditate. So knowing that there is a way that you can practice, knowing that there is the option of sitting daily, of coming to regular classes, those kinds of things also create this this foundation that then creates the conditions for further awakening. So, you know, even if you're a very, very beginner kind of person, you haven't come to this group, I don't know, maybe there's some of you who are here for the very first time tonight, I don't know, um, and you're really, really new, but you know to take, let's just say, five minutes to sit relatively still and follow your breath most days of the week, to take those five minutes, that would be a really good beginning practice. That is that place where you again have this training that you can do to get you started. And then you can let it get bigger as you have time and the ability and the inclination. I'm not one to tell people that the first thing you should do is sit down and meditate for 45 minutes every day like we just did, because most people don't have time for that in their practice. But most people have time for a minimal practice. And that's where you begin, is where is at the minimal part, and then let it get bigger as you get more hooked on it and happy to do it and have more trust in it, actually. It's, it's also that place where this cycle, you know, as you do all of these things, the faith part deepens and then you can do more. So, 
I went spinning off without my notes here. I think there's something about the container of practice. I mean, I've I've been doing this practice for a long time now, since sometime in the early 80s. And, um, you know, so it's not in any way new to me. And sometimes when I'm invited to reflect on these places that that create the beginnings of the training, you know, it's it, it does bring up great happiness to know that there is a training. And at any point, if I fall off, you know, if I go away, if I get sidetracked and I don't practice for a period of time, if you get sidetracked and you don't practice for a period of time, the instructions are pretty simple. You know, it's come back. You know, it's like those days when you go back to the gym and you've been gone for a while. It's a little annoying, actually. They take your little card and run it through their machine and then they say, Welcome back, Mary. And it's like, how did you know I was gone? You know, but of course they know because it says on the computer or something. So we don't know here if you've been gone. So nobody's going to say, you know, welcome back, Andrea. It's nice to see you after we haven't seen you for six months. But if you've been gone from your practice, then you come back. We, you have something that you can pick up again. And the precepts, of course, you can work with at any point in your life. So it really creates this wonderful foundation for your practice. So, you know, the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll open it for questions, is, and I do say this a lot, but I'm always touched when I hear it. One of the things I hear the most often from people who talk to me for one reason or another, something's going on in their life, and I hear, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have this practice. I don't know what I would have done, how I would have gotten through this person's illness or death or this long time of unemployment or whatever it is that they're working with. And that the practice actually provides such a wonderful container, just a simple practice of keeping the precepts and beginning to meditate on a regular basis. And so that's the joy, you know, is knowing. It's not joy in the sense of everything's peachy keen and fine. It's joy because you've got something that works and you know that you have something that works. So I think I'll stop there and see if there are questions or comments about anything that I've said tonight. Does it make sense? I hope. Yeah, I got some nods. That's good. Please. Is that a hand? Yeah, but I can't remember what it was I wanted to ask you. We'll wait for a minute and see if it comes back. Anyone else? Please. Timely and kind.
you're not, if you don't tell someone something honestly, well, no, I think what you're pointing at is that it's really tricky. Yeah. If I'm not telling you, I'm telling you something at the right time, but it's... So it's, it's, it's honest, it's at the right time, it's ben, it may not be... Beneficial doesn't mean that it's nice. And it doesn't mean that you can't be strong. So it has to be helpful. It's beneficial in the sense of this is going to be helpful to you to hear it or to me to be able to say it. And then the spirit of it, the kind part, is not out of meanness. It's wanting, you could say wanting healing, wanting change, transformation, wanting it to be creative for both people. So if I have something to say to you and I, I know that it's honest, I know that I can find a good time. I know that it will be helpful, but I'm not so sure whether I'm being mean or not, whether there's some meanness. Then usually the wise thing is to wait. It's not that I won't ever say it, but to wait and get to it at some later time when I'm clear about my motivation, right? And you could play with any one of those factors in that way. Does that help? Yeah, just to hold off on how, how quick to talk. Yeah. Yeah. To just hold back is such a... Yeah. We talk a lot about being responsive instead of reactive, mm. which I think addresses that. And that place where we really think about what we're going to say rather than just opening the mouth, you know, open mouth, insert foot, you know, that kind of thing. Where, And we all do that. It's not that we, I mean, I would love to tell you that I'd stopped all of my unwise speech, but my family would probably be really quick to tell you otherwise. And I do think it's changed a lot over the years, gradually and slowly. The, the wonderful thing about mindfulness and where this plays in is that with mindfulness, there's that, you know, as you more and more practice awareness of your own being and particularly of the states of your mind and heart, there's that place that goes, oh, I'm a little grumpy. So you're aware that you're grumpy. If you're aware that you're grumpy or cranky or whatever, then that might be a little bit of a red flag about be careful. Be careful what I say. Be careful what my reactions are. And that, again, creates that maybe I shouldn't answer the phone, say that right now, have that conversation. Whatever. Yeah. It's a very interesting practice. All I think is I always seem to wait for conversations with my husband until like 11 o'clock at night. Ah, yes, that's... Yeah. And that's, I mean, I could talk with you some more about that because I I actually, uh, my husband and I teach some about relationship as practice and we talk about using the same counsel practice that I mentioned with couples so that you have chosen times to speak that are not at 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, I had to learn that one the hard way too. Probably most of us did. 
Anyone else? Did you remember? Timeliness. Timeliness. What does timely mean? Well, not at 11 o'clock at night. That's, that's <laughs> simple. Um, Maybe not in front of a group of people. Yeah. Yeah, not in front of a group of people. On the other hand, for you, you know, working on timing might also mean working on really committing to finding a time. You know, that you know that you can use, oh, it's not quite right, it's not quite right, and avoid... So that's not so helpful. So then to really get clear right, what would be a good time to sort of think it through or find it and then commit to it so that it actually happens. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, I'll chime in on timing. It's the toughest for me. Uh-huh. Because a lot of things that you know really need to be said are not easy to say. You're in a group of people, and you know something really needs to be said, and that you know, you're quivering all over, and, and yet you feel like it needs to be said. And sometimes it takes a lot of bravery. Yeah. You know, so, you know that's the, that's where the avoidance. You know, it's like, oh, gee, I could, I'm just going to pass on this. But you know, the scopal thing sometimes is to step up and, and do it. Um, but you know, then I know those times when I'm just pissed and I'm angry. I know that's when I should keep my mouth shut. If I, if I only could, you know, <laughs> um, that would really be skillful, right? right? And sometimes we make the wrong decision. Sometimes we go ahead and say something, doing our best, and then it turns out the timing wasn't so good. That's usually the place where we're off, I think. And if you know that you're honest, you know that beneficial, you know that there's kind, but then the timing's off. And you know maybe something about the other person you didn't know, so so you make a mistake. The the wonderful thing about commitment to the precepts, all of them actually, is that when you're really committed, it actually seems to be easier to begin to go oh blew it, and to go clean up your mess and try again. So um, it is it's it's actually quite helpful. So I think maybe we'll stop there. I don't have very many announcements, um, but I have a couple. The most immediate one, there is no flyer for. It's kind of a secret event. (laughs) So there is a monk who comes through Santa Cruz periodically. His name is Bhante Silagawasi, and he's from Sri Lanka. And he's known to the people who used to have the Sri Lankan restaurant here in town, but they don't anymore, I think, is how it is. Different management. Different management, right. And so he has come here to Vipassana Santa Cruz before, and he will be here this Saturday at 9 o'clock for a few hours, probably 9 until about noon. And he will be teaching, and I believe there's going to be a meal offering. Um, Dan Landry is sort of riding herd on this one. Um, And He's a delightful being. I would really recommend him to you. And so if you would like to come and 
um, spend some time with him and hear what he has to say, bring some food to share and to offer him for his meal, that would be lovely. So Saturday, this Saturday at 9 o'clock. Um, and then a week from tonight, our retreat, the Vipassana Santa Cruz retreat at Land of Medicine Buddha will be underway. And Jason and Bob and Richard Shankman and Marcy and Jason, Bob, and me, I guess. I think that adds up right. Are teaching it. Um, so none of us will be here. And Jill and Bruce, who run the prison derma program for us and have talked here on Thursday night before, are actually kind of orchestrating a fairly significant evening to involve some of the other sanghas in town and invite them to hear about working at the prison. Please. It's actually Jill, Bruce, Natasha, and me. Great. Okay. I didn't look carefully at the flyer. So do you want to say anything about it? Yeah, we'll be talking about our uh, efforts in bringing the Dharma to the two state penitentiaries down in Soledad, which we've been doing 